Take your Bibles, if you would, please. It may take you a little longer this morning, and find the book of Ecclesiastes. As this morning, we're going to launch a study in the book of Ecclesiastes with some fear and trepidation. It is a difficult and challenging book to understand, and yet we're going to study it, and we're going to try and gain some perspective from it. We're going to do our best to understand it in light of the rest of Scripture, and even maybe more so in light of the realities of life under the sun. And so fitting, as we come to the introduction for the book of Ecclesiastes, that we would sing, all I have is Christ. In essence, as the writer of Ecclesiastes begins his study and his writing, this wisdom literature, he's trying to help us gain a healthy perspective of life under the sun with a healthy perspective of life beyond this world as we know it, rooted in obedience to God. And of course, the New Testament makes it very clear, rooted in obedience to Christ as well. This morning, we're going to do an introduction. I hope it's not too tedious, but it will set the stage for really where we're going and how we're going to understand and approach the book of Ecclesiastes. When it comes to commentators, they are all over the place when it comes to what is the meaning of what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. For me, as being a simple man, I don't think it's as complicated as they're trying to make it be. We have to study this text and understand this text in light of the life that we all know. We must study it in the context of the rest of the Scripture and what we've learned from the rest of the Scripture, but we have to study it a little bit different than we would do the pastoral epistles that are laying out a strategy for the local church, a, a theology from Paul or Peter or, or other writers in that New Testament where we go line upon line. And we're going to look at major concepts in the book of Ecclesiastes, but my promise to you is, as a congregation, not all at once, lest you grow impatient, we're going to read entirely through the book of Ecclesiastes and our morning worship services for however length of time this study might take us. But when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, when we look at its author, when we look at some of the things that he communicates in the book of Ecclesiastes to us, we must put it into context. And putting it in context is looking at normal life under the sun that we all participate in, and what is the message that the writer has for us? Woody Allen wrote all the way back in the 1970s, 1979, in fact, an article in the New York Times entitled, Adrift in the Cosmos, and it paints an apt picture of the world as understood outside of God. And as he writes and opines in the New York Times, as a comedian by profession, he writes, more than at any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total extinction. Let us pray that we should have the wisdom to choose correctly. I speak, by the way, not with any sense of futility, but with a panicky conviction of the absolute meaninglessness 
of existence. What? What? He offers two choices then in this world. The choices that he offers is a choice to destruction and utter hopelessness. Nice choice. Do you have another one? It's worse. A panicky conviction of the absolute meaninglessness of existence. I want you to know that the writer of Ecclesiastes speaks to that meaninglessness of existence. I want you to know that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes takes on this very issue, and I want you to know that even though the world is spinning out of control and we are facing challenges that we've never faced, this has always been a problem in life under the sun and trying to figure out what is this all about anyhow? How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? Does anything and any part of life have any real meaning? Well, see, struggle with that. Many people today struggle with that. And unfortunately, because the world has bought into some of the vain philosophies Paul warns us about in Colossians, uh, the Christian church, too, struggles at times. God's people at times struggle with the real meaning of life. What's the point of all of this? It seems like a, a tedious existence where we live, we go through hard times, and we die. There must be something more. Oh, there's something so much more. But it has to do with your perspective. And I believe that the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to assist us with our perspective on the everyday, mundane, normal life. And I would interject, is anything normal anymore? How do we navigate the everyday, normal times of life, and what does it really mean? I believe especially for believers who are trapped by the meaninglessness of life and this existence of repetition that we, we kind of go through the motions, I believe those believers have, have failed to understand and, quite frankly, are biblically illiterate. We just looked at First Peter and Second Peter over the length of over a year and talked about the hope that we have in the worst of times and the promises of God in the best of times, and how we're to, to live soberly and righteous in this present age. And, and as we've learned through those books of First and Second Peter, we know that there's far more to life than its struggles and its challenges and its difficulties. But the problem that most Christians have, even in conservative circles like ours, is that they haven't connected the dots into what the Scripture teaches and what that means on Monday morning, no matter what you might face. David Wells, commenting in 2007, says, I've watched with growing disbelief as the evangelical church has cheerfully plunged into an astonishing biblical illiteracy. He's saying the church doesn't understand the Scripture. The church doesn't know the Scripture. The church doesn't apply the Scripture, and the church seems perfectly content in their plight. Just came back from a week in Kentucky at a pastor's conference that focused on the justification of faith in Christ alone. It focused on the gospel and the hope of the gospel, but that hope of the gospel was connected to everyday life. 
And if we are truly justified, declared righteous, rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are called to live differently. Well, how do we know how to live differently? How do we know what God expects of us? It is found in the pages of the Bible. But there is a plague of biblical illiteracy and theological illiteracy that plagues the church today, and I believe it's played out in a mindset that pursues life under the sun with no understanding of what might come after that leads to this dirge of living and questions that abound about what and how it all matters. I want you to know that as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, it is part of the wisdom literature of Scripture. And I believe that's one of the really key components of interpreting the book correctly. As wisdom literature, there's a purpose in which, uh, in this style and genre, the writer writes. We find the wisdom literature beginning in our Bibles in the book of Job, where Job struggles with the problem of suffering and he struggles with the problem of justice. I believe that the book of Job is very profitable for a world that is screaming about justice and has no idea where to turn to find a sense of justice. That's what wisdom literature is for. Job addresses that. We read the Psalms as the psalm writers pour out their hearts about, about life and living under the sun. We read the book of, of Proverbs, these short, pithy statements of applied wisdom of such that he who speaks first is right until someone comes along and challenges him. That's the world we live in. The problem is nobody cares who comes along and challenges. We say it and we speak it into existence, and we have no time for an alternative view that's against my independence, that challenges my own thinking and affect and emotions. Nobody has the right to challenge me. I believe God does. Thank you very much. He does in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book of wisdom coming out of the Proverbs. And then Ecclesiastes, I believe, is, is in many ways an apologetic book that says, okay, this is the way I lived my life, and this is what I learned. This is what I learned. And that's why the source of the book, the author of the book, and the content of the book are so critically important to the way we live life today. And then, of course, that final wisdom book being the Song of Solomon. The wisdom literature category in all of culture, but particularly in the Bible genre of the Old Testament, really deals with the pragmatics of how the world works. It at times deals with big philosophical issues, and the writer of Ecclesiastes will do that, but it also deals with simple day-to-day living kinds of things and perspectives. Wisdom literature at its best teaches us how to live well in this world. Those who want to maintain harmonious relationships with with their friends, with their family, the church, with God, those who wish to avoid the foolish mistakes that most men and women make in our culture today, turn their attention to the wisdom literature of Scripture, families who desire to raise their children well will be given food for thought and direction in life when it comes to child rearing, when it comes to teaching your children what matters most and, and why it matters most. In essence, it will lead you to the place of teaching your children to fear the Lord 
And in the end of the day, all of the wisdom literature is based and dependent on a fear of the Lord, a deep reverence and respect for His ways, for His Word, for His calling, and for His commands that deal with everyday life, even in the most mundane of times. In many ways, trying not to read into the text, I do see the book of Ecclesiastes as an apologetic book. But it approaches apologetics not from the positive defense of the faith, but almost in a reductio ad absurdum kind of way, almost in that negative side of apologetics that says, this is what people think, this is what people pursue, this is what people think matters most, but I'm here to tell you that's wrong. He reduces all of the arguments of life under the sun outside of God to, to an existence of nothingness or vanity or chasing after the wind, a vacuous and empty in all of its essence, never able to bring any kind of satisfaction. But it's not the negative book that many people make it out to be. People fear to, to enter into a study on the book of Ecclesiastes because it's such drudgery. All, of, all he does is pull the carpet out from under us and say, how bad life is. I suggest you're misreading the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to maybe change that reading and rendering of your understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes as we go through this study. In an apologetic way, as the writer says, all of these things that you're putting your confidence in will fail you. He calls the reader back to a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10 reminds us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Solomon, as he begins his text, and I do believe Solomon is the author, we'll cover that in a minute, finishes the whole treatise of Ecclesiastes, in the final two verses, with a simple conclusion. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the essence of life. Fear God and keep His commandments. And then He reminds us, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So if you can learn to fear God and keep His commandments, if you can get this straight or keep this straight somehow, if in fact you can glean wisdom and understanding for everyday life from the Scripture, do what you've learned. But know this, a failure to do what you've learned will come under the judgment of God someday. You will give an account for every idle word and every idle pursuit and every failed pursuit, accomplishment, and achievement. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now, I know for many of us, that's way too simplistic. There's got to be more, Pastor Jim. There isn't. We must have a healthy, reverential awe for our God, the transcendent God of the universe who sits on a throne tended to by an angelic host singing, holy, holy, holy 
we must have an unwavering belief about ourselves. And as we stand in the presence of His holiness like Isaiah, coming unraveled and the presence of His transcendent glory, woe is me. Part of the failure of modern Christianity is we have a God that is too small. We have a God that is too small because His people have become too big. And until His people see themselves as they really are, they will never see God as who He is. And I sense in some ways that's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes is driving toward. There is hope, there is promise, and you can live life even in the worst of times with a sense of joy and fulfillment if you get this right. What a timely message in a world filled with meaninglessness, triviality, and this pursuit of some kind of happiness so misdefined. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we delve into it as wisdom literature, I pray that there are things that all of us can learn. Pray with me, please. Again, Father, we pray. As we jump into this rather obscure book by way of learning, by way of attentiveness by your church, by way of confusion with all the various viewpoints that are out there, I pray that we would land somewhere in a balanced kind of perspective, seeing the negative side of convincing it says there's nothing really under the sun that has any lasting value, yet the positive side that teaches us to enjoy those things under the sun that You have blessed us with, with an undying belief that a better day is coming. It's hard to keep those two things straight. It's hard to keep them separate. It's hard to, to maintain that perspective. But I pray that in some way, when all is said and done through our study, we've gained a little bit more perspective, both negative and positive, about how we're to live life in this lifetime for Your glory and what it means to fear God and keep His commandments. And to that end, as we begin our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are so dependent upon Your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us into truth. And we do that. May the truth set us free, and may we be free indeed, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your attention, please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit the wind returns and all streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. But the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. All things are full of weariness and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been, it will be. And what has been done, is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been done in the ages before us, and there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all that were ever before me in Jerusalem, and that my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now you understand why people think this is a depressing book. Now you understand why it's such a difficult book to interpret and to understand. You just want to go take a nap. That's depressing. There's nothing new under the sun. It just goes on and on and on. Everything just repeats itself. What's the point? It's exactly the point of Ecclesiastes. What's the point? And as the author delves into that, he takes us out of that darkness and brings us into light, and that is exactly what wisdom literature is designed for. Rodrow Kroll, you heard of him a couple of weeks ago. In his little tiny paperback on Ecclesiastes, he says, show me someone who was schooled in the wisdom of the Bible, and I'll show you a truly wise man or woman. Once you have learned the pearls of God's Word, you will have gained immeasurable wisdom, listen to this, both for living in this world and for preparing for the next. In my opinion, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is all about. How do I live in this world knowing about that world? How do, I, how do I live in this not now, but soon to come kind of existence? How do I balance all of this stuff in life? And as he goes about that, he simply reminds us that there's a progression in our walk with God. It's a progression of, of increased wisdom and knowledge and understanding that leads to this progression to see life on God's terms and eventually ends up, at least we hope and pray, the conclusion of the book, with a life that is lived in the fear of God and under the obedience to our King. I believe in many ways Ecclesiastes works out what we learned in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, and by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and to virtue with knowledge, and to knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly kindness, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, 
They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to show us that life that is ineffective and unfruitful for a lack of knowledge, for a lack of fear, and for a lack of wisdom. So he's going to put all of this in a pragmatic way into practice and look at particular issues that we face in life under the sun that must be predicated upon the wisdom that comes through the Scriptures and a healthy fear of God. But again, I'll tell you, the lack of agreement among commentators is startling, intriguing, and troublesome at best. So that means I will say something that maybe your favorite speaker may not say. And he will say something that, that maybe I don't see in the book of Ecclesiastes. But I would challenge you and encourage you to follow through in this whole study. And I think that if we can find a balance somehow in Ecclesiastes, there's much to take away. And there's grave warnings for each and every one of us. In Proven, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, writes, above all then, Ecclesiastes and be encountered with openness, an openness to God and an openness to change. For we must always consider the possibility that when we encounter a difficult biblical book, that the problem lies not with a book, but with ourselves. The difficulty may be that the book speaks truly about reality where we are devoted to illusions. The difficulty may be that we are not too keen to embrace the truth, but prefer rather to embrace half-truths or lies. He suggests that maybe we're so unsettled about the book of Ecclesiastes because it pulls the rug out from under us, and we don't like that. We like our lives just the way they are, thank you very much. Don't disrupt that. Isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit's role oftentimes is to disrupt that? And how does He do it? He does it through His Word, and thus we come to our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There is a word that is used for the author and writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, the convener of the assembly, the one who assembles. It's not the identity of a person necessarily, but it is a professional or at least an official capacity in which he gathers people together to instruct them in wisdom. doesn't identify by name the person who writes the book of Ecclesiastes, but even in verse 1 we begin to see that there are cues that are dropped for us within the context of Ecclesiastes that seem to point toward a particular person historically in the context of its writing. In a moment, we'll get to that. But this convener of the assembly gathers people together, and for some reason, as he calls them together to speak, it reminds us that he has some sense of, of establishment in the community. People know who he is. People know him. People, people want to hear what he has to say. People want to hear what he is going to expound upon. And I believe much of that has to do with this convener of the assembly, the Kohelet, bearing his soul about the way he lived life, teaching them, this is, this is how I lived and this is what I learned. And they're eager to hear. 
It must have been a man of reputation, a man who was known by those who would gather to a speaking. So he assembles everyone together. He convenes the assembly, and he begins to speak. And of course, he begins to speak in verse 2. Before we get there, the fact that the Kohat is all but completely veiled behind the text of Ecclesiastes, subsumed by his words. This is not about him as an individual. It is about the words that he speaks as he assembles this congregation together. He will speak in the first person. He will speak often of his own particular experiences. But this isn't about the author. This is about the God who created the author. Thus, his conclusion in chapter 12. So, without cluttering this about stories of self, he he focuses on what he is to communicate through the Holy Spirit to a world that is struggling with the very same things that he struggled with in his own personal life. The Colette addresses the gathered readers and listeners, the Israelites, but all of the emphasis falls on the words, not the speaker. I thought about this, and I think about it often. I, I wonder how unhealthy the church is when our story is only about us and not the God who created us or the Christ who saved us. Did you ever notice that? Even in our testimonies today, it's all about us and our experiences where it needs to be all about the glory of God. Reminded this week, justification by faith alone. God did that. What an amazing tale that is. So our story ought to be about what God did. But so much of the time, it's about us. It's about our experiences. And although the the writer communicates his experiences, he doesn't want this to be about, about him necessarily. He wants this. He truly wants this to be about God and, and what God has done and what God will done or will do. And as I look at all of that, and as I look at the hints throughout the book, I truly believe, this is old school for sure, for many, many generations, the author was concluded to be Solomon, based upon the language of the text. Common criticism today is away from a Solomonic kind of authorship to to something or someone else that really isn't known. I am approaching this as if the writer is Solomon himself. We read in 1 Kings chapter 3 that he was blessed with wisdom from God. We believe, we read in 1 Kings chapter 3 that he was blessed with material blessings more than anyone before him in Jerusalem, and that's the very language that he uses in the text here. And I do believe there's some telltale signs, but if you want to argue about who the author is, you missed everything I said already. Uh, It's not about who said it, it's about what he says. That's the emphasis on the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you feel that it's someone else, you can be wrong. We're going to focus on what the writer says says? What does he have for us? What is the point of the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, he doesn't get started off on a very good foot. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the Koaleth, the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What in the world is he talking about? Everything is simple, a breath, a mist, an emptiness, a vacuum. It comes and goes. There is no significance. All is vanity. The word that he uses in Hebrew is habel. 
It's an interesting word, vanity, often translated in this text as meaninglessness. And I believe it encapsulates the perspective that he is writing from as he communicates some of the negative things that he needs to communicate, as well as some of the positive things that he will conclude down the road a little bit. And I believe that when he talks about vanity or meaninglessness, he's looking at the world apart from God. He's looking at a world that God exists, but in some deistic kind of way, He's really disinterested in our lives. He's really not a part of our lives. He, he has no consideration of our lives, and therefore, everything that we do under the sun is meaningless. But I don't believe that that's what He's truly trying to communicate. This word, habel, is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And listen, it is not a label for nihilism. He is not announcing that life is meaningless. He is not announcing that life makes no sense. It doesn't mean that life has no purpose. It doesn't mean that life will bear no fruit. But it does mean, as he deals with this word habel 38 different times in the text, is that at times in life, there's this human inability to grasp the deep significance of life and God's way juxtaposed against the life lived on our terms. He is saying, this is a hard road because oftentimes, although we know the truth, it hasn't set us free and we set off on a journey to define life on our terms and and that's empty and meaninglessness. There's, There's got to be a place for God. There has to be a role for God. God has to be a part of that life, or, or everything is meaningless. That's the world that we live in today. That is Woody Allen. That is Hollywood. That is the education system. That is social justice. That's everything that happens in our culture today. Why? Because we've carved out God. But even Nietzsche himself, when he pronounced that God is dead was very deeply troubled at the ramifications for that. And he said, you better understand that if God really is dead, life doesn't matter. That is not what this writer is trying to communicate. He is trying to communicate there's nothing in life when you cut God out of the picture. Nothing. But then he also communicates, and and I think in a very positive way, so I try and find a balance. He also communicates, but you know what? There are some good things in life that you can truly enjoy right now because they've come from the good hand of God. And every gift of God is perfect and good and for a pleasure and our enjoyment. I think he's trying to communicate, you can enjoy life, but only under certain terms. And it can never work apart from God. This nihilism is according to Ron Nash, this viewpoint, that traditional values and beliefs are unfounded and that existence is senseless and useless. The truth of the matter is the philosophy is bankrupt because when there are no traditional or holistic or or uniform values and norms, then life is senseless and life is useless and it doesn't mean anything. And that's the culture today. When there are no transcendent values, no transcendent morality, no transcendent God, life doesn't work. He'll use a phrase later in the book, a handful of nothing. That's our world today. They got a handful of nothing. Life can't 
work that way. But in a very positive way, he said, life is glorious. God's a part of it. You can enjoy the sunshine. You can enjoy the laughter of children. You can enjoy even the difficult times that draw you close to God. You can enjoy life under this sun as a gift from God because your perspective is right and correct. And all throughout our study, we will look at both the negative and the positive aspects of the author's communication here in Ecclesiastes. But time and time again, he uses this word, hebel, the emptiness and meaninglessness of a world without God. Proman, in his commentary, writes, the universe, the writer of Ecclesiastes argues, is beyond human comprehension and cannot be fathomed. We don't know the end from the beginning. Reminds me of James. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Life is a vapor. It's here and and gone. It is is something that is beyond our ability to grasp and understand and predict. And even more importantly, it is beyond our ability to control. And some of you still are struggling with that. Life happens. You have no control. And that's an empty existence unless you know the one who controls all of life. It's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's what he's trying to communicate to us. Wisdom may indeed be better than folly, but wisdom does not enable us to give a comprehensive account of reality. Why is God doing what He's doing and thus provide us with a means somehow to control it? How many of us are plagued with the question, why, when we ought to be asking the question, who? Wasn't that the wisdom that came from Job? He asked over and over, why, 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 why? And God answered him by saying, here's who I am. Job said, I have uttered things that I shouldn't have uttered. I spoke out of turn. I I, I get it now. If your life is plagued with why questions, you will never find answers, and this world will provide empty meaning for you. But if you're looking for who? you've come to the right place in Ecclesiastes. Because not just at the end of the book, but I believe even in his writings throughout the book, he's always giving us a healthy perspective that the why question becomes less important in a world that God is a part of. As we look at this book of Ecclesiastes, we will see that the Kohelet was convinced that both the wise and the seekers of fame and wealth and pleasure had higher hopes for satisfaction and fulfillment in this life than his reading of it warranted. In essence, David Hubbard says, the writer is saying, scale back your expectations. (laughs) Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't think that this is the end of the end and this is where your happiness lies. We know that to be the case as he pours out his soul to us. Reality, David Gibson makes an interesting point when he says Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means to live in a world that God made and called good, in a world which has also gone so very wrong, often in catastrophic ways. And that's why a study of the book of Ecclesiastes is critically important in the age that we live today. God created a perfect world. And then came Genesis chapter 3. And some of us think that that perfect world is salvageable under the sun, but it is not. This 
imperfect world tainted by sin is only salvageable in the Son, S-O-N. And that is the end of the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's just what he's bringing us to. And in the catastrophic times of life, in life when everything goes so very wrong, can we still believe that God made this world and called it good? Can we trust Him? Interestingly enough, you will find no quotations of the book of Ecclesiastes in the New Testament. Not once is it referenced for us. Some commentators do see uh, at least a glimpse of the message of Ecclesiastes and a passage of Scripture that I've introduced to you a couple of times, and is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 21, where Paul looks at this fallen world and, and, and this tarnished creation and says, "'For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us.'" For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In this world, Paul says, the world is groaning tainted by sin, corrupted by sin, nothing in this world valuable in and of itself. But the answer is the God who created this world and will restore this world. And we know that in the end, there will be a new heaven and new earth, and everything that God desired from the beginning will finally be a reality. But right now, we are living in the groaning age. Did you ever stop to consider that? The groaning age. The older you get, the more you groan. But there's an answer. There's a hope. And there's a promise. And even to the elderly, Psalm is going to explain to us, not that he has to, how the eyes dim and the heart fails. We get crooked over and we shake in our old age. And then he turns his attention to young people. For the young people here, listen up. He says, remember the Creator in the days of your youth. Don't don't waste your years thinking that you've got the world by the tail. It's a lie. Solomon speaks to all of this stuff. And it's funny that even if he, as he describes this, this process of breaking down of the body, I know it well, some of you know it well. He does it in some kind of way that turns our attention away from our aches and pains and our groanings towards the God who has promised that a better day is coming. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's what we're going to focus on as we move through this. R.C. Sproul, in commenting on this book of Ecclesiastes, says the broad question that the writer of Ecclesiastes seeks to answer is, is there any meaning to the time that I spend in this world? We put on a man's tombstone that he was born on a certain day and that he died on a certain day. And between those two poles of time, we live our lives. The basic question that everyone asks, does my life mean anything? R.C. goes on to say a common refrain echoed in Ecclesiastes is that there is futility and vanity and nothing new under the sun. 
If our lives truly begin under the sun as a cosmic accident, a life without God, a result of random collisions and mutations of inert matter, then our ultimate destiny is to return to the dust that bore us, and then life has no purpose. But he goes on to say, if we understand who made us, if we understand that He made this world and blessed it, if we understand that He has promised to rescue this world, if He has laid claim to your life through the justification that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, if you are His, life under the sun does matter. There's a famous phrase that Sproul says over and over and over again. When we see life on God's terms, right now counts forever. A glorious phrase, but what a haunting phrase as well. What do you mean? Do you know what I'm going through? How does this count forever? We must trust our God and His providence when we have no questions to the answers of why. That He's determined the end from the beginning, brings rain on the just and the unjust. And he always does what's right in his own eyes. And isn't that the crux of the matter? We would rather he do what's right in our eyes. And God says, that's not the way this works. So in your disillusionment, you can live your life as if there is no God. But a part of you knows that there is. And until you understand and realize that he is, you will be chasing after the wind, and you will be left with a handful of nothing. I love that phrase in Ecclesiastes because it describes so many lives today, a handful of nothing, a handful of empty. There is a better way to live, and I believe the writer of Ecclesiastes clearly lays that out before us. And although he goes through a litany of challenges, and although his language sometimes is rather depressing in nature, in chapter 12, I remind you again, he concludes all of this text in unraveling reality by saying, the end of the matter, let me tell you what I found to be true. Fear God and keep His commandments because that's what life is all about. You know, I think some Christians today haven't learned that lesson. But I also think the writer, if indeed it was Solomon, had all the human wisdom and even God wisdom at his disposal, he still got it wrong. Sometimes life swallows you up sells you a bill of goods, and it promises you things that it can never deliver. Only God is the giver of life. Only God is the giver of good things. And the only life that makes any sense is a life not lived without God, but a life lived in the fear of God, that He has everything under control. And gee, where have you heard this before? everything's going to be okay. That's how the writer ends the book. So if you think this is going to be a depressing journey, it depends on how you're living your life. 
And if you're living your life under the sun, without God, it will aptly describe how broken your life is today. But if you're living life to its best, believing that every good and perfect gift comes from God, and I am one of His children, and He is ordering my steps, and I will live in light of eternity, well, then there's great news in the book of Ecclesiastes for you. What this book will do is make us make a choice. Can't live in the middle anymore. You have to decide, am I going to live life without God? Or am I going to live every living moment with an awareness and a consciousness that there is a God and He has everything under control and a better day is coming? Welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes. It'll be challenging. It will be helpful. It will be hurtful. But I believe it'll be good in the long run, and I pray that you're blessed through our study. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us as we delve into a study of this book. May you use it for your glory. May you restore our perspective. May you prick our conscience. Because we don't intend to live in this world without God. Sometimes that's exactly what we do. We've lost our perspective restored, I pray. For your glory alone and remind us to fear God and keep His commandments. That is the essence of life. May we know it, may we live it, and may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.